All righty, guys. Welcome back. I am Jensen. We have Kurt Havens, PhD candidate in the house, the number one foremost anabolics and PD expert in the world. Very lucky to know this guy. Good friend, good guy. And uh, we both had a common gripe with something that we've seen pretty common. Um, a lot of wellness clinics prescribing a lot of AIs to people that may not need them. Not going to say more on that right now because we'll get into the meat of it with more context in a second. But got to do the little disclaimer. Um, technically, Kurt is a doctor. I'm not. Either way, this is not doctor advice for you, not medical advice. Do not follow any of this. This is just for education, entertainment purposes only. Um, also, Kurt has an amazing HGHE book that everyone who is a coach, anyone that is an enhanced bodybuilder, or anyone who just wants to uh, live a perhaps longer and definitely more high quality life should check out. So that is going to be linked in the show notes below for sure. Um, he also did a um, anabolics mastery course, which is fantastic as well. It goes very in depth um, and, you know, follow him on the socials. And you have um, a code for that. You have a code for the mastery course too. They can use yeah, that. Yeah, I have codes in my link too. So I'll put okay, that cool. as well. Um, yeah, I have one code that I think technically covers everything okay. on that site, which is pretty convenient that he set it up that way. Um, okay, so to start you us off. dive in with estrogen? Yeah, I was going to say, just, just go ahead and start us off with where you think is best to start us off with it. We were already kind of talking before and I think we had a good a good flow going. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think you and I are kind of on the same page with the the estrogen thing. I think we're seeing there's just two basic schools going on right now, and they're very extreme. And I've said it before, I, I wish that bodybuilding could be somewhere more in the middle and more moderate in its, in its thinking, right? Like, I think estrogen should neither be high nor low. I think it's there's a reason why there's a range and there's an appropriate range and, and it's and it doesn't always mean that it lines up with that medical range either. It depends on androgens and other things going on, right? If you're running two grams of tests, clearly you can run your estrogen slightly higher, depending on the person. And there's some individuality. I think where you started with this was the TRT clinics that are just automatically putting guys on Arimidex when they're on like, you know, 120 milligrams of test. Now, 99% of the time is probably not the right answer. I I understand where they're coming from. It's probably easy from a patient compliance thing just to give them what they need up front, whether, you know, unfortunately they probably don't need that. If you need an AI with 120 or 150 milligrams of tests, you should probably look at some other lifestyle factors like losing some body fat first, generally. Be my mind, in my mind, right? I mean, I think I once someone's at a super physiological level of androgens, I think an AI is, is a valuable tool potentially. And I think this is also where guys go wrong on the other end, right? Then guys want to run two grams of test and try to mask it with some other sort of DHT thing because they're afraid of using an AI. But again, there's a time and a place for all of these tools. It's just when you use them. And if, if someone doesn't understand these things, I think perhaps it's about reaching out to me or reaching out to you or someone understands these things and not just following blindly someone on the internet that just spewing garbage. Finding good sources is incredibly important. And that's why when I have a question, I defer to you because I know there's not really going to be a better source anywhere. And that's why exactly. I work so hard to promote oh. all your stuff and everything. But we, I mean, we all learn from somewhere, right? So yep. I, I don't have all the answers to this stuff either. I have a very specific, you know, knowledge. Um, but I obviously ask questions of other people as well. 
Um, um, sorry, yeah, you can go ahead if you want. If you want to talk about the, a lot of guys don't understand that there's more than one type of estrogen. That's one thing that I've run into a lot with guys when I'm explaining estradiol specifically to them on blood work. Can you go into all of that? Sure. Well, there's there's really four main estrogens. The really the only two that that you and I would ever be concerned with dealing with males or premenopausal female athletes would be estradiol, which is E2, which is the common one, uh, which is the main estrogen, and estrone, which is E1. The other two are really irrelevant for what you and I do. And for most clinical stuff, unless you're dealing with like, you know, uh, postmenopausal women or other or, or other strange disorders. Um, in, in most men, estradiol is going to be the dominant form of estrogen same as women. Estrone is very minor. It, it is worth, if you're using certain box like Equipoise, Boldenone, it's worth when you run at labs, it's worth getting an Estrone test just to see if your body is metabolizing at that direction because it does that in some people or, or something similar. We're not exactly sure what it's doing, but it's based on it being, um, based on the structure of that molecule though, it tends to metabolize to estrone versus a, a diol metabolite like testosterone would. Mm -hmm. So you also then have two, you wanted me to talk about the receptors as well, the alpha and the beta. Yeah. Just, just really quick. Um, what does estrone tend to do for males? What happens if it's too low, if it's too high, what type of balance do we think? So it in a manual, ideally don't really want any, uh, it, okay. it will, it can promote fat storage. Okay. Uh, there are some slight health benefits to to a, a little bit of it, but in general, you want basically as low estrone as possible. It will bind to the estrogen receptor the same as estradiol and basically through steric hindrance block estradiol from being able to bind to it as well. So you'll be, by default, you'll be affecting the way that your body can use estrogen properly if your estrone were to elevate. Um, it does modulate. This is one of the reasons why equipoise also messes with people's appetite too, depending on which, which direction it's metabolizing will affect people's appetite. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah. Estrogen in men okay. and in women to a large degree in men controls um, our food drive. So you'll notice if you've ever crushed your estrogen pre-contest, your appetite kind of gets funky, right? Your bile production goes down. You don't really digest things very well. Your stomach gets a little distended. Um, and so, you know, and when your estrogen is high, again, you might eat more out of like a, a sympathetic drive, like your, your nervous system, you're basically, you, I want to say eat like a woman, but you start to, you start to eat probably more emotionally than, than yeah. you would normally. So it, it, estrogen definitely modulates that. So if your estrogen is skewed from certain drugs, it'll change your appetite. It's not so much that it, I, people have asked me before if it's because EQ is so anabolic that it's just driving your appetite up all EQ is no more anabolic than let's say testosterone or any of those common ones, nandrolone um, on a milligram basis. So that you have two receptors as well for estrogen. You have alpha and beta. They're for bodybuilding purposes. They're not super important. Basically the easiest way to, to remember them is that ERB, ER beta, we would consider bad. That's not really the whole story, but it, in general, they're the ones that are, that are going to cause the cancerous growths. Those yeah. to find in your breasts, those are the ones that you and I would want to block. And the alpha receptors tend to be the healthier places where you want estrogen, like your liver, your genitals. Um, and this is kind of what a serum, like a selective estrogen receptor modulator in theory should do is it should be basically blocking beta, but allowing alpha to work. 
versus an AI is just going to lower total serum estradiol by changing its production rate. Do we have any information on which serums effectively do that? I think I heard you talking on one podcast about how Masteron is most likely effective at blocking the beta receptor. Yeah, so Masteron works basically like tamoxifen, Novodex, in, in the same way. So it's basically going to interact with beta and basically antagonize that so it's not really expressing genes and it should leave alpha pretty much alone, which will also leave serum estradiol alone. So in theory on Mastron, I've seen different things, but generally speaking on Mastron, if you get your, if you got a sensitive estradiol test, your estradiol total should be normal and wherever it's going to ride, it's not really squashing the blood level. It's just really blocking it at the receptor site. Um, it lowers, when you mess with estrogen receptor beta, you lower aldosterone, which causes water excretion. And that's why uh, Novodex seems to be, a Mastron seems to be drier than almost a Rimidex to a degree, right? Even though it's not lowering estrogen, it's because it's manipulating your water balance. With that, you also lose minerals. So that's also part of the reason why I don't personally like Mastron as a growth drug because it's depleting you of electrolytes. And so you get, it makes my muscles get stringy and flat on it sometimes. Yeah, I know that you have a rather high metabolism. You tend to be more towards the flatter side. It takes you- above. Yeah, I just, yeah. So like something like a Primobolin would be more efficient for me if I'm trying to grow. Mastron, I think Mastron's a great- chemical. I think it has a place in a contest prep or for strength athletes. I know a lot of the, the, the world's strongest men guys in Europe, they'll use Mastron, you know, but they also are, are a different breed of human than I am. These guys are 400 pounds. So they'll, they'll use it as like a hardening thing or a strength agent with along with Nandrolone or something. Um, yeah. Mastron and Nandrolone together. That's a whole topic that I'd be curious to get into. Um, now for the receptors, which one because you said that beta might be the one that leads more to cancer. IGF-1, unfortunately, has a role with cancer, which I say unfortunately because for bodybuilders, we want a lot of IGF-1, but we can't exactly control exactly where it goes except for you know maybe doing our HGH IM instead of subcutaneous. But um, which one promotes HGH to IGF-1 conversion? Well, uh, by stimulating, by basically blocking beta and allowing alpha to stay active, you'll you'll cause. So the IGF to estrogen thing is, is more nuanced than that. It only requires, the liver just requires some level of estrogen present for IGF. It doesn't need an elevated level of estrogen. Uh, just letting your estrogen ride up because we can take this and go into DHT if you want, because it's kind of a similar experience. You, when can, you, you can absolutely take that. Yeah. Good work. When you run, if you run your estrogen too high, you'll notice your serum IGF will go up. That doesn't mean your IGF inside your muscles, the, the, you know, the level that actually matters is rising. It's just staying in serum. And a lot of times it's bound to, to body protein one. It's not always the case, but generally just running something up in serum doesn't mean it's active. So one of the reasons why with testosterone, right, it's good to see your total test level, but you don't look at your total test level, like shoot, it's a 4,000, I'm building tons of muscle. It depends on what is free, what's actually working versus the total numbers, same as IGF. And, and that takes us to DHT too. So DHT is another one that people look at blood markers. And I think this is how our conversation started for this video. We were talking about DHT markers with estrogen. Um, some of this is new, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it. So basically circulating levels of DHT in response. Now, I'm gonna say testosterone replacement therapy because that's really what we've studied. Although it seems to run parallel with cycles as well. It's just, unfortunately, we don't look at thousand milligram testosterone cycles. Um, so circulating levels of DHT in response to TRT 
do not correlate with those found in androgen-sensitive tissues due to homeostatic control of intercellular DHT. So what that basically means is the amount of DHT inside of our cells that's actually acting on the androgen receptor in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus is tightly, tightly controlled by your cell has a regulatory and limiting steps that basically limit that. And the stuff that's floating in your blood is not necessarily entering. So again, this opens a lot of things. So the research was directed mostly at cancer and heart disease, but it also opens some doors with even hair loss. We could do a separate video on, we could go farther into the DHT thing, I think in another video, but I, I'll explain a little further. So basically the, circulate, the circulating levels of DHT in response to TRT do not correlate with those found in androgen sensitive tissues, like I just said, which is your prostate, adipose tissue, muscle, due to local regulatory mechanisms that are tightly controlled um, by intercellular androgen homeostasis. So your body wants to always maintain homeostasis. We as bodybuilders try to force the situation sometimes. The body has regulatory things that it'll do to fight back. So the modest increase that you observe in serum DHT uh, and the DHT T ratio, testosterone ratio observed in TRT patients is unlikely to be cause of clinical concern. So like you and I were talking about, when you see elevated DHT, all of a sudden, oh my God, it's at two to one. We're now looking at it like it actually doesn't really matter. It's not necessarily doing anything that's causing harm per se. Um, so it's particularly when it's viewed in the context of changes observed in the parameters that are currently marked for T replacement products and those under development, which DHT data are available. So for what we know right now, it's looking like it's less and less relevant what's going on with DHT. Um, Is there a way well, to see how much DHT, DHT would actually be usable currently? Probably if you did some sort of cell modeling or something, be very expensive. Require okay. biopsies yeah. and stuff. I, um, wasn't I think I, I, I think the, the end point that I was going to come to, I think, was basically, like I said to you again before we filmed. I think that with, while the science is fascinating, right? Like, and I I do this. I've devoted my life to learning this stuff. I think at the end of the day, what really matters is is your food, right? Is your training right? Are you recovering? You know, if you're using androgens or using an appropriate amount of androgens causing growth, are you actually making progress? Those are the things that matter. I think we all tend to like overanalyze these markers and try to look for like what we're missing, what's, the, and I'm not really sure that a lot of these things even actually matter, right? Because you can, you could probably pull labs of some of the top guys on the Olympia stage and compare them to your own. They probably don't look much different. So it's like not really sure what we're even looking for. Um, so it's interesting too. So when you talk about CVD, so like with, you know, cardiac disease and things, um, they've actually found now that DHT might improve the outcome of these things. And that estrogen, when you expose, when you expose certain, these things, actually estrogen might make it worse. So it, again, it kind of flips the story a little bit. So for a long time, we were told T was good, right? Estrogen was bad. And then in recent times, it was the opposite. It was like, well, all the health benefits are from estrogen. Well, they're kind of from both. So it really depends on what cells you're talking about and what levels you're talking about. So within a normal range, but once you start to get out of that range and you expose certain cells to different things, different, different things happen. So we found that with cancer as well. So if you expose a cancer cell and we're using like mouse line, so it's not, unfortunately, it's, you can't really get a lot of human cancer cell lines to study, but when you use mouse line cancer cells and you expose them to free DHT and free estrogen, Estrogen actually causes cyclic amino monophosphate increase, which basically means that the cancer cell has now started to produce energy, so it's growing. 
that was from estrogen, not from, not from DHT. So we've known for a while that DHT was most likely not the cause of prostate cancer. And this kind of circles back to what you said about IGF. So IGF, testosterone, androgens, they cause cell proliferation, right? They cause growth. That's why we use them because they cause us to grow. That being said, they do not cause cancer. If cancer is present, they can cause cancer to grow. So that's where it gets tricky. They're not the cause of it. Technically, testosterone, DHT, they are not carcinogens. Estrogen technically can become a, a carcinogen depending on what the liver does with it and how it adds hydrogens to it. So it's called hydroxylation. So I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this before. It's one of the reasons why it's important to eat dietary fiber because you want to excrete excess estrogen through your intestines. And if you don't, it'll recirculate back. And if something's wrong, it'll add the wrong amount of hydrogens. From my understanding, it's very important that you maintain decent liver health as well for that reason. Yeah, you just, yeah, generally the healthier you are, the, obviously the more you're going to prevent these diseases. Um, so it's, um, there's also some other things about DHT that we're not really sure. So DHT also does not play a substantial, a, a substantial role in body composition compared to T under normal conditions. So for a long time, we've been told as bodybuilders, like DHT is what made you hard necessarily and, and lowered fat. And actually it turns out that normal DHT, that doesn't mean modified DHT drugs, normal DHT levels actually have very little effect on your body composition. There was some original animal studies that showed that it did, but they don't seem to translate to humans at all. Um, there's very little data on that as far as that and also brain cognition. So for a while, we used to also think that DHT would cross the blood, blood brain barrier and affect the way that you and I would think as men. And again, there's very little data to show that that's the case. It seems more testosterone and estrogen are actually modulating our brain than DHT specifically. The only thing that 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 seems promising that we've now found with DHT that we're we're pretty certain does affect is insulin sensitivity. So that that is a, kind of an interesting thing. So the higher the DHT level, um, it should lower insulin resistance. So it might be a possible thing with diabetes in the future. And it's totally separate action from testosterone versus a lot of the actions, as you see, right? Growth hormone and IGF have a lot of crossover mechanisms and testosterone and DHT have a lot of crossover. This almost seems like a separate just DHT mechanism here. Huh. That's interesting because you hear a lot about estrogen with insulin sensitivity, but you don't really hear as much with DHT. So it. that's the thing is we just, we're learning all the time, right? And that's the thing is that that's why it's really hard to make absolute statements. That's why you probably don't hear me say a lot of absolutes because we don't know the answer to a lot of these things and it's constantly changing. And it changes at this, at this time, it's changing faster than we can keep up with it. It's also different. Does now every expert speaks with nuance? They say under this context, in this specific scenario, they're very because they understand how much goes into it. Yeah. That's not not the rant too much, but I kind of hate not my generation, but kind of my generation with the, the whole social absolutes. Media. Like who can be the loudest and just shout some oversimplified version of something rather than at least trying to pull people in with maybe a little bit less loud of a thing that's a little more accurate into hearing the long form versions so they can actually get the full context. But yeah, rant over. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> to basically explain the DHT thing inside the cell, where it's actually coming from is not the DHT outside the cell uh, because of uh, like molar mass theory. So basically testosterone is bigger. So it'll push DHT out of the way. So even though DHT does bind to the androgen receptor more firmly mm -hmm. uh, and it holds on longer, Right, there's more efficacy, more efficiency, more affinity than testosterone. Testosterone's bigger, so it pushes DHT out of the way. That's the way that chemistry works. Um, 
where the DHT inside the cell comes from is mostly from testosterone entering and then 5-alpha reductase inside the cell is causing that reduction to DHT. So it's actually the, the testosterone in your blood that's allowing the DHT to, to generate inside the cell, not the free-floating DHT. Now, okay, so, you know, with estrogen, we tend to say if someone's a lot fatter, they're going to have more aromatase activity because some of that's going to be mediated through fat cells from getting from test to estrogen. Is there any, how does that process work with test to DHT? There's two genes, uh, SRD5A, so SRD5-alpha reductase, basically, and you have two different types. They interact with different cells, depending on where we're talking about in the body, per se. That's that's probably beyond this conversation. What in normal people, it's very tightly regulated and it doesn't correlate to any of those factors. Like you can normally, like you're saying, you could look at someone and be like, he probably aromatizes heavier based on what they look like, right? A little bit of water retention tends to be a little heavier versus guys like you and I tend to be a little leaner, probably not big aromatizers. With DHD, you can't tell. It seems to be a polymorphism inside the gene, something wrong with that gene that's not coded right and it's causing more DHT production. So the other thing that's interesting is most DHT is bound to sex hormone binding globulin, just like testosterone, just like estrogen in women. The difference is, so sex hormone binding globulin actually has its own receptor called the sex hormone binding globulin receptor. So testosterone that's bound to SHBG can still interact with the cell while it's attached and it'll cause gene transcription through that. It's just not as prevalent as free testosterone. What we found though is DHT that's bound to sex hormone binding globulin cannot it will not attach to that receptor. Okay. The only place it will is in the prostate because there's another gene that's present that's only present there. So again, we're not even sure what the implications are, but it's just interesting to think about. So I think a lot of things we thought about DHT initially aren't correct, right? And it seems that testosterone, again, is the king and it's really what's affecting a lot of these things. Now, I might've been totally wrong when I was explaining this to clients. So let, let me know if this makes sense. One, when I give some clients the talk where I break down, here's test, here's estrogen, here's DHT, because I like to inform people for basically an hour long rant where I make a mess questions in order to be responsible before they make a genuinely life-changing decision that's going to affect the rest of their yeah, life. I, agree. Um, I, I tend, one, one thing that I say about DHT is like, this is where most of the secondary sex male characteristics come from. Would you say that someone, someone was like, I don't know, just, just go in, into that if you think that's a yeah, I think so. I, I wouldn't change the way you approach what would be considered like androgenic properties versus, you know, anabolic properties. I think the difference where people go wrong, and again, this crosses over to hair loss again and hair growth, is that testosterone is androgenic as well on its own. It's not that it only becomes androgenic when it converts to DHT. So, and this specifically with hair loss, I know there's a lot of debate about this, but the bottom line is there is an androgen receptor on your hair follicle. There's a progesterone receptor. There's a prolactin receptor. There are estrogen receptors. There's all sorts of things that are interacting with your hair and affecting different stages of growth, different stages of death, and various things can occur. Uh, so it's not as simple as DHT causes hair loss. It's just that in normal, natural, non-drug using humans, DHT is more androgenic and found more prevalent in those tissues. If somebody uses steroids, it could be anything. Even nandrolone technically is androgenic. It's just that it tends to reduce to something less androgenic in those tissues. But nandrolone itself can still cause hair loss. No steroid is, is hair safe, right? Like we heard previously <laughs> the day before that halotestin was now all of a sudden supposedly hair safe and safe for women and children. Meanwhile, it has like an androgenic rating of 1800. 
Yeah, man, we gotta we gotta go into that. I I got I got thirty Instagram comments deep, and we we gotta go into that one. I I need to know. I think I already <laughs> know that I'm on the right side of this one, but please uh, just do a brief overview of where this uh, quick hit of unfortunately popular new disinformation came from. Okay. Uh, the whole Halo. Sure. Not being toxic. Yeah, and I'm not going to name anybody. I, I think because I think that we can stay. My platform is one of education. I don't, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad or prove anyone wrong. I just think that that's a, a fun place to be. I think we can all be friends and do this at the same time. I just want to honestly help people. I, so we're talking about halo testing. Fluoxymesterone is the name of the chemical. It was discovered in 1956. It was released in 1957. Uh, it's still FDA approved. Uh, for inoperable terminal women's breast cancer. It's very rarely used and prescribed. Most doctors aren't even aware of it. Um, it can technically, it can still be written for androgen replacement therapy, although I don't know of any doctor in the right mind that would write for it for that. It has been used in micropenis in boys. So this is a good example how androgenic it is. If you're born with a 5-alpha reductase issue and you developed or lack of development, you have a micropenis, basically a penis that's four standard deviations smaller than it's supposed to be. And halo testing is so androgenic that it actually causes penile growth in those children. So to say that it's safe in women and children is kind of a far-fetched thing, especially children, whether growing. Um, it, it is a fluorinated 17-alpha alkylated oral steroid. All 17-alpha alkylated steroids, even Anavar, does carry some level of hepatotoxicity. What we determine the risk is generally based on how androgenic something is and how long the half-life is. So halotestin has a much longer half-life than a lot of these other drugs, and it's significantly more androgenic. So it's kind of a double whammy. It's similar to anadrol. So it's one of the reasons why D-ball, although toxic, is not nearly as toxic as anadrol on the liver, at least. Um, it's the, 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 the problem, I think, in the space, and this is kind of what I'm trying to fill here, I, and I hope that I'm able to do this is I think that a lot of this stuff gets very deep with chemistry. So it it's taken years and years and years of studying this stuff and understanding the way these drugs are developed and the way they're designed and the way they interact with the human body. And then on top of it, when you're in school or in this profession, you have access to these studies. Some studies are not public access at all and need special requirements to actually see them. For a lot of the steroid stuff from the 70s and 80s, when the FDA outlawed these drugs or changed their prescription guidelines, these companies basically hold the permit, the public permissions to view these things because they don't want people like bodybuilders reading these studies and getting ideas on how to use these drugs. You'll notice with boldenone, there's almost no studies for human grade that are public access on boldenone. They've removed them all. So when you see people cite studies on a lot of these things, most likely unless they're a doctor, they have no access to this stuff. So I don't know whether what they're even getting. They're probably reading some sort of abstract. Um, the the one study to show that I think that the initial claim was that halotestin doesn't cause suppression of the HPTA axis. And it was based on a study from 1975 that showed that LH and FSH were at least short term with that dose, not suppressed. That doesn't mean that it's not causing suppression of that. That just means that the brain isn't seeing a reason to shut that off. It doesn't mean that it's not causing other levels of suppression somewhere else. And even if that were the case, you can't take that and make an assumption that the drug is safe, right? Because there's so many other things going on there that it's just the fact that it's 17 alpha alkylated makes it technically not safe, right? No drug, no drug, aspirin included, Tylenol, 
is not 100% safe. That's why every drug has a warning on it, right? You can kill yourself with anything. So to, to ever say anything is safe should come with a disclaimer, right? As we see, right? There's tons of medicine we see commercials on TV, and then they have this 30-second list of things that are going to kill you from that drug. Um, so that, that in and of itself is not necessarily a great study, and it's a really old study. So a lot of it was done before we could do really accurate cell modeling, and it's just, it's unfortunately not the case with halotestin. It is not, um, I wouldn't consider it safe. I would not consider it a first call drug for men. I would not consider it um, for women or children ever. I would think the only place that I think halotestin fits in is pre-contest for a bodybuilder. If you are mentally strong, if you were in a place that you have the mental capacity to handle a drug like that, it is used, right? 10 to 40 milligrams tops for two, maybe three weeks just to give you a little bit of energy at the very end when food is very low and you basically can barely make it to the gym. I think strong men sometimes use it, but even some of the world's strongest men that I've talked to, they don't even use it. So it just depends on the person. It's honestly, you could probably get a similar central nervous system effect from Anivar without causing as much harm or potential harm. Yeah, that's the thing, right? So on a less sciencey, more just anecdotal meta note, mental health does play into physical health, which then plays into performance, which then plays into your physique. So taking something that just very commonly, for lack of a better term, fucks people up mentally is just, I think maybe the number one reason that it should just never be considered safe. It's so. like, and we, you and I talked again before about this, like off camera, I think to me, it, it, it likes to flip flop between depression and aggression in like a very strange way for most people. I do know some people that actually feel okay on it. A lot of it has to do with how much dopamine your body naturally produces and how much you respond to what your dopamine receptors are doing. People that tend to be low in dopamine might do better on halo testing. Okay. Uh, I don't know what your experiences are and you don't have to talk about your personal experiences. I, I apparently, maybe I have too much dopamine. It's not something that reacts well with me at all. I mean, I was just uh, incredibly aggressive and horny. <laughs> like it was just... I wanted to punch a hole in the wall and then fuck it. That's the best yeah. way that I can do it. And that's, yeah. So yeah. not really appropriate run children. No, 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 definitely not a women and children friendly drug. Um, there was one question that I had as we were popping up through that. Um, and I feel like we've opened up like 18 different, <laughs> 18 different. I know, I'm like trying to too. select. Which we, can keep, we can go back and forth too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where, where were you going to go at next? What's the next? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. So I think. Okay, we, okay, we, sorry. So one, one of the ones that I did actually yeah. put here, I'm literally staring right at it, is we, okay, obviously guys, there, we cannot give specific ranges that are necessarily going to be ideal because it is incredibly, incredibly individual and also ratios play into it just as much as total amounts do to some degree, which Kurt will clarify. But I will just say from anecdotal experience, for me and for being a coach, from having friends in this space across different sports for you know decade and a half now at this point, very broad, somewhere between 20 and 80 is usually okay for guys with estrogen. But I would say, yeah. unless you're incredibly gynosensitive, or unless you have some other progesterone issue that's making you, you know, the estrogen act a little bit stronger. Um, I would probably lean more towards, I would almost say like 
35 to 80. Okay. What are you talking? You talking replacement therapy, talking bulking, cutting, probably different. I, I was, I was kind of just saying in general, I mean, at the very, if you're prepping for a show, it's going to be pretty much tanked yeah. at the end, yeah. regardless. Okay. I, that's, that's a good I thing. I figured I'd clarify on that. Cause yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. Use that as a, as a jumping point for you. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so what, what, whatever the, the standard range is, you know, let's say 20 to 40. Right. Um, I know guys, I feel good at 29 and, and, and a little bit above maybe in the forties, depending on what the androgen load is. I know other guys that feel totally fine, a little lower than that. Most guys don't feel low. Great. Like in the low twenties, um, at least that, that I know, um, there are some guys that feel okay when it's slightly higher. I tend to like, I feel like there's emotional stuff that comes in when mine goes, you know, in the fifties and sixties, eighties high for me. Yeah. Um, but I think, so medicine is based on averages. I think people have to understand that, right? So all of the studies we look at, all the dosing that you see for any drug, whether it's Ozempic or whatever, it, they're based on averages. So we can't study every single person, every single situation. So we come up with like, you know, least common denominator here. And that's kind of where these ranges come from is what average people will produce or, or feel okay or their health is in the best place. I think where... Where we can differ, though, is I think when looking at any of these numbers, it's not just a number. It's also how the person responds to it, right? So you could have someone, and what else they're doing? If you're taking 2,000 milligrams of testosterone and your estrogen is an 80 and you're not crying at AT&T commercials and you're not holding a ton of water and you're not, right, you don't look like a wet bag of flour, then that's probably fine. Are you getting more anabolism out of having an 80? I honestly, I couldn't say. I don't think so, but- we don't really know that yet. I, I'm not a huge fan of running it high for no reason, but I also don't think you need to crush it either. I think if you're running 300 milligrams of tests and your estrogen's at 80, I would say that's too high. I would rather someone either use less test or modulate their estrogen or use less test and add another anabolic that doesn't aromatize. Like that would be a great time for Primo or Mastron or something in there. If you're someone who's a heavy aromatizer and you don't want to use an AI. Right. But that's also an appropriate time that an AI could be used responsibly just to get the estrogen in the range. I don't mean you're not trying to get it to six. You're trying to get it in, you know, 30 something in that sweet spot. Yeah. I think if I had anyone coming up on 80 and we needed to push dosages higher at that point, it's either going to be an AI or it's going to be a master on or pre totally. yeah. So yeah. Depending on the person. Yeah. I do. I think something that that I've seen change in the last decade that I think is interesting or maybe it was like this previous, but I've just seen, I've seen the changes more recently is that, right? Testosterone is king. Testosterone is your primary anabolic, right? You're going to use that to grow. And I see a lot of guys now, and I think it's from Derek, more plates, more dates, but he was saying years ago about testosterone and, and keeping it lower and not modulating estrogen. You see a lot of guys now that they'll, they'll get testosterone to like 200 and all of a sudden they want to add something. I'm like, but you've never actually played with testosterone in an appropriate range yet to see what you're going to get out of it. I would rather someone run test again, I'm not giving medical advice, but I would rather see someone run test if they tolerate a 600 or a gram and play with what they can get out of it. If they can control it and feel good on that rather than use barely a super super physiological level of it and start adding other drugs. And that seems wacky to me, I, you know, like, and I'm not, again, I don't, I, I think he was right with you don't need to your first cycles on 500 milligrams either i think that that was ridiculous as well but i think that once you get to your level or my level you're going to be using a gram of something right and you might have to control estrogen and that goes with the game like 
I know people don't want to hear that, but that's that's part of it. And it's not just about stacking mass run on top to kind of control it, right? Sometimes you have to use an AI. I know for me with Nandrolone, the only appropriate way that I can tolerate Nandrolone and tolerate it well is if I use test, primo, and Nandrolone together, and I have to use an AI. If I keep my estrogen very low, Nandrolone's tolerable for me. Once my estrogen gets high, it becomes a mess. Yeah, it's crazy if you throw a Nandrolone when your estrogen is already high, how quick you can have issues. Can oh, yeah. Mental, physical. Briefly go into how progesterone potentiates. Sure. Yeah. So it... Uh, so it's basically, it's just sensitizing the estrogen receptor. So it's working on the estrogen side as well, making estrogen more basically responsive to making the receptor more responsive to the circulating estrogen. It's also having progesterone side effects, which also magnify estrogen and progesterone on its own will lower DHT production. So you're, you're basically squashing five alpha reductase inside the cell as well when nandrolone is in there and present. So you're getting like a triple whammy. So that's kind of where I think something like Primabol and added into that stack makes sense. And if you look at the Golden Era guys, they were, with the serious lack of knowledge that they had, they were actually doing things pretty correctly for what they knew and what they had available, right? Like the standard cycle, the late 70s and early 80s was basically Primo, Deca, and they used D-Ball. And the D-Ball was only there to, to allow some estrogen, right? And they would pull the D-Ball out before a contest. They knew enough to do that. And then we'd add something like when um, you know Winstrol or Anavar in there in its place, and then a lot of times they would drop the Deca two weeks out from a show as well because they understood that there was still some water retention there. And they understood though that the DHT from Primo somehow made them feel okay. And Nandrolone, very few guys back there ran Deca only. I think Danny Padilla and um, the Black Prince Robbie Robertson were the only two guys that I'm aware of that were any good that ran Deca only cycles back then. Just like today, it'd be two out of whatever hundred guys, right? Might feel okay on that sort of thing. And I know Danny jokes. Danny jokes that his wife used to bust his chops all the time because his his junk never worked. I, I was so, gonna say, man, I just it's so it, would, it didn't really work. Just sticks to work. Even I, I would say there, there's probably only this in my somewhat limited experience. If you do a one to one test to nandrolone ratio, even that's pretty rough for a lot of guys. I I try to have the uh, Nandrolone only be about half the test and lots of visualization there, but okay. someone, yeah. I don't really use Nandrolone that much anymore. But if back in the day when I knew less and did use test and Nandrolone more, that's what seemed to be okay for me. But I, I had an additional question. So, and I know we have to wrap up here, Sam. So this can probably be the last one for okay. you. Go to five, but um, progesterone sides. What? would be some progesterone sides that are even possible to have without having, I guess, estrogen sides. Like, I feel like it's very easy to get them mixed up. Kind of, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of crossover. Um, the sexual side effects. So sometimes we'll see in men, you, you look at their labs and they're, they're having erectile issues. They're not using nandrolone. So this is like nandrolone aside. And, Estrogen seems to be in the right place and testosterone seems to be in the right place, which therefore DHT would be roughly in the right place. And it, a lot of times, and if, if there's still something wrong, you check progesterone, it tends to be bottomed out or too high. If it's out of range for some reason, that can throw off. So really the most common things in progesterone are, for men is basically mood and, and sex drive issues. 
And so it's magnified. They seem a lot like estrogen side effects. And I think when you use DECA and test, right, the old stack of like DECA tests and D-ball is a nightmare because your estrogen's like through the roof. You have a toxic level of seven, seven alpha methyl estradiol and you're magnified it with the DECA. It's like, you're just a mess. Like, at least in my mind, it seems like a really silly idea to do that together. You want to look like the Michelin man? Hey, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the emotional uh, mess. So I think it's, I think progesterone wise sides that like bodybuilders are experienced are more on like the emotional or sexual sides. Physical, there is some water retention, whether that's directly from the progesterone, like nandrolone mod, uh, modulates aldosterone as well, raises it. So the old, it's funny because it shows that bodybuilders were actually correct about some things and scientists were wrong. So for years, bodybuilders said, DECA puts water in your joints. And a guy like me would say, it's not possible put water in your joints yeah. well, i was wrong so it actually does it actually directly affects aldosterone and actually increases your water and mineral balance so it actually was occurring we just weren't aware of how it was happening so so they were correct that makes sense man because it's just even if i get my collagen synthesis rate super high with primo or eq yep. in the day just doesn't do the same thing as deco no, dude, even even high dose i mean even high growth hormone doesn't, doesn't seem to do it works pretty well but it's still not it's not, it's not smooth. The same. It's yeah, not it's smooth. Not the same. I like yeah. the smoothness. It's like yeah. Like, and the same with growth. Someone asked me today about growth hormone and joints, and I was like, "That's a slow go, man. Like, it's not to say they don't fix your joints, but it's not the same as Deca. Nothing heals your joints, or at least feels better than that on your joints." Sorry, one last super quick one. Yeah, yeah. because we're talking about tendon healing, BPC one fifty seven mm -hmm. and uh, TB five hundred or TB four. Those I feel like heal my joints very ridiculously quick. Similar experiences with you, or no? I no, but I've I've been pretty fortunate that I've never had any tendon like actual injuries. It's I think it's hit or miss with different people, and again, it might come down to the quality of it, where it's coming from. I think the problem is a lot of this stuff's compounded, and we just don't know. I've had when before they changed the laws on it, I've had prescription uh, BPC. Um, that we use with my wife for her knees and it, you know, a little bit of a difference, nothing crazy, but it was probably a chronic issue that she has in there. So it's going to heal that. Um, I know some guys like yourself that swear by it and other guys that get nothing out of it, but it might come down to the quality of the stuff. TB 500 seems more of an acute injury, like an immediate thing. Like you tear your rotator cuff, you use TB. BPC is kind of like a long, kind of looked at it like growth hormone. Like you would use it more long duration. Like it can be used for long periods of time to kind of rebuild collagen over time versus TB 500 seems to be more short-term. If you've had that injury for a year, using TB seems like a waste, at least from the literature that I'm aware of. One thing that I took away from literature, but you would interpret a lot better than I, is that the anti-inflammatory properties of TB500 seem to be a bit more aggressive from the jump than BPC. Yeah. So which That's I, probably like, why it's working better instantly, but is yeah. it doing it as much as BPC? Eh. I don't know. Yeah, I, that's probably why TB500 seems to work better for acute stuff, but again... Yeah who really knows what's that, that's what i was that's what i was kind of connected in my mind but yeah it's hard to say sweet well dude appreciate yeah, it. yeah. and i'll have you on my channel we can we can keep going with these i think we got lots of topics please do, please do. whatever the, the content. yeah yeah see what your audience wants ask them what they see what the comments are yeah exactly. what you want. the comments are i mean this is the whole you know me doing this this podcast thing has kind of just been uh i started a lot of different things at once at the very very middle and kind of end mm -hmm. of of last year so it's it's you know still figuring out what i want with it but kind of come to the conclusion that i think uh 
my highest purpose, so to speak, is talking to incredibly smart people like you, trying to ask good questions, trying to make it more digestible, and then maybe trying to make it just at least like entertaining enough that people totally. can really get yeah, to dude, That's all we ever want. Yeah. And then, you know, just being able to talk my own stuff as well, to some degree through talking to you guys. I think that's me disseminating good information, I think is going to end up being uh, one of my skills, not to be a podcast. Definitely. No, definitely. Yeah. I want to, want to use everyone for what they're best for. And Kurt is very much pushing for, you know, just getting this information out there. That's not really any other source of, um, so yeah, well, that's it, what I found. I don't know if I, that's, that's why I started this is I just found it like when I was in school, that's what I found really frustrating is that not only was there just no information, they actually told us the wrong things. So like you can't ask most doctors about this stuff because they're taught the exact opposite. They're taught testosterone is horrible for you, causes cancer. They don't go into endocrinology at all. You have to do your fellowship, but they don't encourage that at all. They'd rather push you into something else. So when I realized that there literally was no information out there that was real. Like I started watching these, uh, you know, other people's podcasts and stuff. And it was just garbage that was out there. Basically most of it, there is some good stuff out there. I think figure Steve does, you know, good work. And I think Derek did good stuff as a whole out there. I didn't mean to pick on him before, but I think there's a, more garbage out there than, than not. Seems, seems like me. I was lucky. So I got in with the, uh learning from bigger Steve early. So when you were saying before, you know, like the whole test, the 200 thing, more plates, more dates, I was on the opposite end where I was just like bioidentical hormones. Sweet. Figured, figured that out after five years of running stupid cycles. <laughs> yeah. well, that's kind of how we learn, right? If we can, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a conversation I have with clients all the time when I try to explain like, well, we're going to do it this way. And we're going to, you know, because I'm trying to rent you doing the same thing that I did. Cause why, why are we going to just re keep redoing this stupid cycle again? Right. It's so dumb. Like, and then you're going to get stuck on two grams of shit for no reason five years from now. And you don't need to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, to yeah, give you I appreciate you Jensen. at the end so that people hear it twice. Um, or if they're switching over to car stereo and they put us on or something, um, links for, Kurt's coaching will be in bio link for my coaching will be in bio. I'll separate those out. So, you know, if you want the super smart guy that might be extra busy with all the research at the same time, but is the man go to Kurt. If you want someone who is extra casual, and maybe just <laughs> shit really often that Curtis has to sit through before the calls, you can always come to me. Um, and then also the HGH ebook that I highly recommend by Kurt, as well as the, Anabolics mastery course will also be uh, below. Is there any other any other final things you want to say or any things you want to plug? No, I mean no. I think you and I are very similar in what we're looking for, right? You know, we're just here to help people. Absolutely. Cool. All righty, guys. Appreciate you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you would like to hear more of and what you took away from this one. <laughs>